Hey everybody, welcome back to the Grey Malkin Lane podcast where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1970s. The, uh, the book we're on today comes out in uh, 1970. It's still tripping on my tongue saying a new decade on my show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm so happy to be joined by my friends Connor Goldsmith and Caroline Bird today. Uh, thank you both for being here. I was just saying as we started, I, uh, I'm not meeting anyone new today, so it's kind of like I'm hanging out with some friends, which is a, a lovely feeling. Let me have you both introduce yourselves. Uh, let us know your gender pronouns, where we might know you from. And the intro question today is, uh, what's your signature dance? move you're uh you're out at the club there's some uh there's some groovy beats playing uh what are your signature dance moves what can people expect to see uh let's start with connor um hi i'm connor goldsmith uh i use he him pronouns although like gay style she her if i know you like that hey girl hey he's also yeah no i mean like you know She's podcasting, that kind of stuff. Um, <laughs> I am a literary agent. I'm probably best known to X-Men fans as the host of the podcast Cerebro, a character-by-character -character deep dive on this franchise. Uh, it's been a wild ride these first hundred episodes, and I can't wait for the next hundred. I think that uh, the show's proven it has legs, even when we run out of A-list characters, which is something I was worried about, but it's uh, it's been a heartening sign that fans seem to be interested, even if I'm talking about Threnody or Candy Southern, uh, <laughs> as we're going to discuss today. Chad, you will be on the show soon, but that is something that will be discussed when it can be discussed. So not I am yet. very excited, uh, and we've chosen a wonderful character. So yeah, I'll keep it. I'll yeah, 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 no. I'm, so I'm you're ready to announce <laughs> Signature dance move was a great question. I definitely do kind of a like hand in front of my eyes thing that I noticed that like I do. Like the backwards scissor move? Not like on, not like <laughs> that literal like batutsi kind of thing, but definitely like in that zone. Uh, I also love a like hand in my hair moment, but that's mostly because I have really thick hair and it gets sweaty if I don't brush it out of my face every entirely fair are you a uh are you a all in the hips or all in the feet kind of dancer um i try to be in the hip zone uh one of the key things i was told as a young man was uh that white people who can't dance can't dance because they dance with their shoulders so don't do that and <laughs> i have put that into practice as much as i can so hips and feet kind of situation but as long as you're not leading with the shoulders i think it uh it's not so bad but i wouldn't say i'm you know the great dance star of our time i do okay <laughs> it's you know serviceable enough for the club fantastic fantastic and then uh, caroline um i'm caroline bird um i'm a cosplayer and my uh, my pronouns are she her my signature move, my dance move, I actually don't really dance when I go to clubs or anything um, because I can't dance. <laughs> I'm the girl that stands in the corner um, just drinking and, you know, vibing with the music and everything. But if I do attempt to dance, I'm like, I do the Elaine, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Absolutely. I'm just like all over the place. But I also 
prefer clubs that are like really crowded so nobody can notice how bad I dance. <laughs> Fantastic. Sometimes it's just about pretending you know what you're doing. That's true of a lot of things. Certainly true of learning how to podcast. Uh, you know, a lot of it was just, um, I'm just going to run with this and see how it goes. I used Listen to, to a couple a, shows. I used to be a country kicker in like fourth grade where we do. I like, love that. You know, square dancing and all that line dancing. But those are like, you don't really need rhythm or anything for that. And I, I actually <laughs> don't like country music at all. Well, I, I mean, <laughs> now I uh, I've recently been watching Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders making the team, uh, which is my new reality TV obsession that unfortunately was canceled, uh, but maybe we'll be coming back. We'll see. But it ran for like 16 seasons and it's the most insane show of all time. The way that they speak to and about these girls who are world class dancers who have perfect bodies is insane. But uh, part <laughs> of what's been interesting about it is I also do not I mean, like, I enjoy, you know, a Johnny Cash or like Loretta Lynn or like Patsy Cline, but I'm not a huge like country listener. So I guess I had the Dixie Chicks album as a kid, but not my wheelhouse either. And it's definitely what the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders dance to frequently, given the theming of the team. So I've had to quickly start to develop more of an appreciation for the songs because otherwise it would just be, it would not be a super pleasant viewing experience so if I'm, you I'm, are it's a learning curve but i'm getting there if you are not linda ronstadt or patsy klein i'm not going to listen to you but to me i don't even think and, of linda ronstadt as a country singer oh i think she's great and then uh no if, i love linda ronstadt but i wouldn't call her a country singer but if you're john I guess some of memory or tim mcgraw you were easily part of my sexual awakening <laughs> oh sure well i love that for you and i love tim mcgraw he and faith hill are always you know supporting left-wing causes and pissing off their constituency but still <laughs> making platinum records which i always find enjoyable and i definitely had a faith hill moment when she went pop when she was like cry little yeah. just a little. i was like yes faith go off <laughs> and uh lastly i'm chad anderson i use he him pronouns i uh my signature dance, mo dance moves i grew up in high school in the late 90s where it was like Cotton Eye Joe and Criss Cross will make you jump, jump, which are not proud moments in America's dance history. Uh, now that I'm in my 40s, I'll maybe go out dancing once a month. I usually go out with my best friend, Colby, who's been on the show a number of times, and my husband, Mike. Uh, Mike needs a few drinks in, and then he's like a very sidestep, snap kind of cheerleader dancer. <laughs> Colby's like the drop it, ass to the floor, up and down, over and over kind of dancer. And I just don't care what anyone thinks. I'm not a great dancer, but I think if you watch me dance, you can tell I'm having a good time, which I kind of think is where Angel and Candy Southern land when they end to go to the club. They don't just give they don't give a shit what anyone thinks. They are there to feel the beat and have a good time. And that's where I think they're good dancers, though, in part because George Tuska draws the shit out of this story and the panels of them dancing are really beautiful. So I, I tend to think I mean, my parents uh, are very good dancers and like are always they they have been married for almost 40 years and they still at like a wedding or something will get out there and start doing you know their twirls and turns and things and people get very excited about it and that's kind of how i imagine this there's a lost art kind of of like partner dancing that we don't quite do anymore but that certainly people in our parents generation were like upset. i mean i guess people still do but like i've i've never been like let's learn a you know swing routine or something that's just sure, not yeah, yeah. 
there's something so special about just a gay club and a dance floor and a good beat and just shutting my brain down once in a while. It's for uh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's more my dance. I'm not like into. It's not that I wouldn't, but I uh, I am just not really uh, experienced at choreographed dancing. I would say outside oh, yeah. of my theater kid days, but that was a long time ago now. Caroline, uh, have you ever been dancing in a gay club? Yes, I have actually. Good, good yeah. answer. It's so fun. <laughs> <laughs> I don't actually like. I did very minimal dancing for the most part because it was at this club in North Carolina called Ibiza, and mm. oh, well, that's one a good of name. my. Yeah, it's funny if it's in North Carolina. It's like yeah, not, very not Ibiza. Well, because but... I went to um, my <laughs> military, my technical school was over there, mm -hmm. and one of my coworker, well, my yeah, not coworker, um, one of the NCOs there wanted to introduce me to his boyfriend, so we had to go out of town and everything. This is back in the in the day when it wasn't acceptable to be homosexual in the military. Mm -hmm. So we had to be kind of we had to go out away from the base, you know, and he took us and we met at the club. And yeah, so we danced a little bit on the, the dance floor and everything. But for the most part, I hung out upstairs, you know, with a bunch of other people. I had no idea who they were and just hung out on the couch. That's so. usually like I, you know, I, I like a dance moment, but I'm more of a let's find a table kind of person yeah. at the club, if I'm perfectly honest. Completely but, understood. So uh, I want to I want to begin today. Well, it, when we get there in a little while, we are past the X-Men 60s comics. We just had our anniversary uh, of X-Men 66 and the big show that we did, which was wonderful. I hope you all enjoyed it. Uh, we are now getting into an era on the show where we're going to be spending time in the early 70s books and then working in. Uh, some of the modern stuff that's set in the pre-continuity. So uh, some of the flashback stuff and some of the series and is single issues that fit into the 60s or pre-60s era that are relevant. That's where we're going to be on my show over the next uh, year or so, including X-Men The Hidden Years. Uh, today we're jumping into Kazar number two, which is a anthology title that only ran for three issues. All three issues have uh, two issues reprinted from Kazar, who had not been around that long. <laughs> It's up. a collection, basically, of the Kazar stories that they'd been doing because they were planning, hopefully, to launch like a Kazar ongoing, which they did in, I think, 74. Yeah, right? yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so it's meant to catch everybody up on what Kazar has been up to outside of the X-Men stories they might have read. And it also, I guess this was just like an inventory story they had lying around, features as a backup yeah. Randomly in two issues. And then the third one is in a different anthology title. Kazar uh, this... number one has a Hercules original story in it. Kazar two. Right, but it's bizarre have an to have a story. But it's bizarre to have a three part backup and a three issue anthology title <laughs> and have the backup be in issues <laughs> two and three of this one and then in a different anthology book for part three. <laughs> And then it um, continues into Marvel Tales number 30. So this episode and the next two are going to cover that story, which is an angel story. We'll talk about that in a little while. But for those who want to follow along with the content that we're doing, that's where we're going to be spending time. This uh, these three-part story is collected at the back of Marvel Masterworks, and I believe the Marvel Essentials books uh, that cover the end of the first volume of the X-Men. So check those out. 
Uh, I think it's not, in the uh, X-Men, the 60s Omnibus Volume 2. Mm-hmm. I'd have to double check. but I It's think not it easy to find otherwise because it's a, it's just a random story. But it's a lot of fun and full of like early 70s kind of Batman 60s show kind of nonsense. <laughs> crazy well, and super, I mean, it's Jerry Siegel wrote it. Yeah. Is, uh, how much did he write for Marvel? I feel like not very much. Not much. Not much at all. This was during an era, we'll get there, but this is during an era where I think Stanley was handing Jerry Siegel some work because he wasn't... Yeah. Super great financially, and right. it turns into this crazy story, which is which is so camp. I want to start today by reflecting, and this is a big question. And Connor, I want you to take it first. Reflecting on uh, collecting comics as a kid, what we loved about the comics when we were kids, and how that has turned into our love of comics as adults. So I'm keeping that a little bit broad based. Uh, but are you willing to kind of start with that one, Connor? Sure. I mean, I was brought into this by my dad. He gave me Marvel Masterworks hardcovers when I was like seven or eight. He was an X-Men collector, so he had a lot of back issues. And as I got older, I was allowed to read his reader copies. Uh, so for me, it was in part a way to relate to my dad. Um He traveled a lot for work. He was an attorney. He worked seven days a week when I was a kid, a little kid, uh, until I was about 12. He worked a lot and would travel for weeks at a time. Um, And so we had little things that were our things. So X-Men comics was something we could talk about. Or like we always recorded Mystery Science Theater and then watched it together. Like we had specific stuff. And uh, we're very close now, but... When I was a kid, there was a little bit of of a distance just born from the fact that he physically wasn't present because he was out making money to support the family. So um, to me, it will kind of always be about that a little bit at core. And one of the things that's been really rewarding about doing my podcast now as a 35-year-old is that my dad listens to every episode. Uh, He's very communicative with me about his thoughts about them. He says that he's learned a lot about me from it because I talk about my life and my personal life in a way that I wouldn't necessarily with my parents all the time. And he (laughs) uh, guest appeared on the show for the Carl Lycos Sauron episode, which I really love and and which a lot of people have responded to. Uh, It's just something that's really nice to have. It's this three-odd-hour conversation between me and my dad that I now have forever. So that's an exciting thing. It's a wonderful episode. And I know you just talked about that experience of recording with your dad on your recent episode about Jamie Braddock, which was really special hearing you uh, delve in there. As someone who was not close to his dad growing up and is still not uh, hearing from a gay man and his relationship with his father, it's really special. Oh, I'm very lucky. Uh, I'm very, very, very lucky in a lot of different ways. So, um, yeah, that part of it is is key for me. The other thing is it was uh, the X-Men helped me figure out what was going on with my sexuality at a young age. I mean, Warren Worthington uh, in the Dark Phoenix saga was a really significant image for me. I didn't read this story until much later, and he's less sexy here than he is in the Claremont and Burns stuff. But uh, there's definitely some appeal here, too. And uh, it also was just this really expansive world that, like, my other 
deep obsessive interest as a kid was uh, Greek and Roman mythology. I was really, really into that stuff. I ended up majoring in the classics um, in addition to English. It's, you know, that, that that sprawling world, the hugeness of it, the complex continuity, the continuity that contradicted itself because Greek mythology, uh, you know, different writers from ancient times over hundreds of years had very different ideas about what the story should be. You even sure. look just at like Sophocles versus Euripides and the stories can be very different. They're not too far apart and they're both working in the same medium of Athenian tragedy. So that kind of stuff has always really interested me. And in the same way here, Marvel comics and the X-Men in particular were interesting to me as a world that I had to figure out. And by the time I was accessing it as a child in the 90s, reading back issues primarily, because that's what my dad wanted to talk. My, my dad stopped reading comics in like 95. So he wasn't keen to, you know, he he was like, read this. It's from the 70s. I was your age when I read this in the 60s or whatever, you know. So uh, it was a nice thing there. But it was also there was so much history for me to catch up on. There was so much for me to figure out. And part of what I do with my show is try to give newer readers a window into how rich that all is going back and make it more accessible because that's the most daunting thing about the X-Men, right? Is how vast and complicated and gnarled by editorial interference and corporate interference and whatever else a big two comic like this gets over 60 years. Fantastic. And I have more questions on that line, but let me turn that over to Caroline for a second. Uh, or do you want to talk about your love of comics as a kid and how that's uh, carried over into your life as an adult? Um, When I started reading comics as a kid, you know, I, I loved the adventures that they would go on and everything. I was really big in, into those books, the Choose Your Own Adventures books. Um, So, you know, it kept me kind of entertained, took me off to an, a whole new world and everything. Um. I didn't have a lot of friends growing up and so there wasn't a whole lot to do you know in the area that i lived in um when i was first getting into comics i lived in new mexico so there was like nothing out there nothing for me to do nothing um so yeah the comics kind of kept me company and <laughs> i know it sounds kind of sad but yeah it's just um, no, I think it sounds like an experience that a lot of people have, and particularly why a lot of people get into X-Men, because the characters have that misfit subject position that a lot of people mm -hmm. relate to for any number of different reasons. When you were on my show, we talked about how being mixed race made you feel sometimes isolated, things like that. It makes a lot of sense to me that this material would speak to you, you know? Yeah, it it kept me... It, took me to um outside of my own world you know my my it was kind of boring you know at times and so like it just you know I felt like I could live vic vicariously through these characters and over time you know it it almost gives you that feeling that you know these characters are kind of you're like like your friends you know um because my friends living on a military base growing up my friends kind of came and went and you know there it was like um I would have friends for a few months and then they would move away, you know, mm -hmm. so comics were more of a consistent thing for me in my life, you know, and then now as an adult, um, you know, I got, I got back into it years later. You know, I've been into it like on and off, but now I'm more consistent with it now and I could pass it down share things with my own daughters 
you know, who've gotten into comics themselves, you know, so um, just like, you know, you and your father getting to share your love for comics and everything, you know, I feel like I have something like that with my, my daughters, you know, so anytime we watch the movies or anything like that, like I get to point out things here and there, like share my knowledge, you know, so it's mm -hmm. fun, you know, and watching the X-Men animated shows with them and, you know, it's, it's a good bonding thing, you know. I'm going to share a little bit more seriously than I intended to as we're talking through. I'm in like my like, oh, inner child space for a second. I, uh, I grew up in a really big family. I'm the sixth of seven kids. And mm -hmm. I was I was the gay son. And I have five sisters and a brother who is a lot. Uh, but <laughs> I was I was the kid that my like my mom really relied on to be like the good kid, the one that made all the good choices. And we grew up Mormon, which was a ton I was going to say, is your brother older than you or younger? Uh, older. I'm the sixth of seven and I have a gay little sister. Uh, but the brother is which not because I was thinking of like having five girls in a row in a Mormon family sounds like it would be like a nightmare scenario. My, my brother, keep is number, my brother is number <laughs> three, but he's like a criminal kind of not a good guy. So, gotcha. Okay. So he, there's, so there was like a lot of responsibility on my shoulders and a lot of problems with siblings and family and lots of things going on. So I've shared on the show before, but comic books uh, really meant a lot to me. It was my own thing. It was the only thing that was mine. It was the place to escape to. And I would pick up books off the rack at the grocery store, you know, kind of back in that era uh, to the point where when I got in high school, I went to the local comic shop and I'm like, I don't have a lot of money and I need comics. And they ended up giving me a job and paying me an hourly rate in comic books. Uh, and then fast forward, I was a Mormon missionary for two years. I would like sneak to the magazine aisle and buy comic books and hide them in my jacket because I didn't want anyone else to see because it was against the rules. I'd like hide them under my mattress like they were Playboys. <laughs> like, these, they've, they've always been like super sacred to me well into adulthood uh, to the point where I wrote for Marvel for a number of years because I, uh, I had this kind of encyclopedic knowledge. Getting lost in this universe meant a lot. When I take it back to kids, the idea of characters being powered up, watching Caliban switch from the little sick mm -hmm. guy with the big eyes to the super strong like whoa that's amazing and watch Angel get his metal wings the fantasy of it all and the way that the powers could work now that I'm an adult I like that stuff less although it's still fun in camp I'm, I'm more into the continuity and the character and I think the uh the mantra of comics has changed a lot what they mean to people and how the stories are told are super different than they ever have been uh before uh, so, Connor, let's hear if you're willing to share a little bit of your origin story from, I know you became a literary agent and you are educated, and then that became an X-Men podcast at a particular point. And you're thriving, my friend. You're doing so well. But I'd love to hear a little of your journey. I'm making a lot more doing the X-Men podcast than I have with any uh, more serious stuff I've ever done, which is, you know, uh, a funny thing. Sometimes you just hit it. Like, you know, sometimes you say, okay, I'm going to do this silly thing that makes me happy and people really respond. And I think that's what happened here. Um, so like my career story a little bit is what you're asking. If, if you're willing to share and actually let me provide some quick commentary. And I think you'd agree your podcast launched at a time. I think when people needed it most Krakoa. Well, I certainly needed it. That's why I was, that's why I was doing, I was just jumping back in to Krakoa. Uh, I had been out for a little bit because Inhumans versus X-Men had really turned me off. <laughs> uh, I believe I'm still, if you're listening, Jeff Lemire, please unblock me on Twitter. I didn't mean it. <laughs> 
I said something mean about Inhumans versus X-Men like in 2017. And I, I believe I'm still blocked by Jeff, who I hear is a really nice guy. So uh, I, I apologize. The last time I ever tweeted a super negative opinion of a comic because I realized, oh, they can see this. That's like, you know, not... Uh, something you you think about all the there's time. a difference there's a difference between i didn't like this story and this fucking writer should burn in hell i'm not and saying like <laughs> why does this writer hate powerful women which is i believe what i <laughs> tweeted because i was upset about the the emma frost and of course i i you know after i took a minute to calm down i was like this was probably an editorial mandate make her a bad guy again so i probably shouldn't have tweeted that uh, anyway Long story, long. Don't even worry about it. And I, I, but I'm, uh, I, I think back on that now a bunch because I'm very anti, like you know, tweeting about stuff I don't like because at this point, I know what it's like to see people talking about how much they don't like my podcast and to kind of like come across that. And I'm like, oh, that's not that's not a fun feeling. So now I try not to do that to anybody else. Uh. So I went to college with the idea that I was going to become a classics professor, actually. Um, so I majored in Greek language and literature. And then it turned out I was really, really bad at ancient Greek and Latin. I'm just like not, <laughs> I'm not like naturally a languages person. And then particularly ancient languages is, uh, ancient languages are really mathematic. Like a lot of it is about the declension it's like it's like figuring out an equation like the sentences don't have orders to them you just have to know like that's in the genitive case so it means something possessive and like but it could occur after the verb or at the beginning of the sentence like it's just not they were still figuring out language right so it's a uh, written language anyway so it's is just this not where, is this where you and anthony met i know anthony's big into this scholarly stuff no well. uh anthony Anthony and I met on Twitter uh, in the DMs. Is okay. how Anthony and I met. Okay, so ahead. no, nothing to do with uh, with my academic. Because you're both so fucking um, smart. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, but it is very funny now, like because when we he's talking about Anthony Oliveira for people who are not aware he and i dated briefly a very long time ago uh and before he was writing comics at all and before long before i had a podcast so it was funny that it's all kind of uh come back around now he was actually doing his dissertation when we were dating so uh it was a while back but um so i went to to college to pursue the classics and then i wasn't good enough at the languages which you really need to be great at to teach it i mean i think i could teach the plays and whatnot in english the tragedies and the epics in a compelling way but no one's gonna hire you for an academic position if you don't then also teach it at level 300 in greek so sure, sure. uh i gave up on that pretty quickly picked up an english double was trying to figure out what i wanted to do and what i decided at a certain point was that i wanted to be a talent agent for actors uh, because I had been an actor, like an amateur actor, obviously, growing up. Uh, I was a big theater kid. And I have always had a struggle with my weight. Um, and in college, it reached a point where I wasn't content to play fat guy roles anymore. Uh, and I realized that I wasn't comfortable being... I mean, to go back to the Dallas Cowboys cheerleader show for a moment, I didn't want to be the the public figure who was being scrutinized. I'm also obsessive compulsive. I have an anxiety disorder. I get very stressed about that stuff. Um, uh, as, as a quick aside, I also did high school and college theater, and I would always get cast as like 
the foppish funny role. Uh, sure. I'm, I'm a little feminine. I've got big features. And I always would hope to get cast as the romantic lead so that I could finally kiss a girl and just get it over with. I couldn't do sure, it. Sure, right. But maybe I could do it on stage and it never happened. <laughs> I never thought I would be cast as the romantic lead. But like for the, the, the moment I quit was uh, I was at Oberlin sophomore year and they were doing cabaret and I auditioned to play the MC, and the role went to a straight guy who's a great actor, but... You know, I was just like, that's annoying. And they wanted me to play Herr Schultz, who's like not even in the movie. And this was right a year after I had played Mr. Mushtick in Little Shop. And I love Little Shop. And that's a great part. But I was like, just because I am a fat Jewish guy, I'm not playing the fat Jewish guy character, stock character in every musical. Like, I just refuse to do that. If you're not like, you're not going to let me sing because I, I I I could really sing. I mean, I was like all state and all of that. And um I still can, you know, karaoke, but I haven't trained in a really long time. Uh, anyway, so I, I decided I wanted to be in the arts, but that I didn't want to be the product. So I thought, well, then I'll be a facilitator. I'll be someone who helps artists, actors, whatever, achieve their career dreams. And I'll be the person they thank at the Emmys or whatever, and that'll be great. So I pursued that out of college. Um, I was very lucky in that my uncle was teaching acting at NYU by then. So he connected me with, uh, it's now the A3 Artists Agency, but it was called Abrams Artists back then. Harry Abrams retired, so it's like changed its name. But um, Abrams Artists Agency in 2010, they were looking for an intern in the children's department, which is not my wheelhouse, but I was happy to take any, it was a mailroom job. I mean, when you're looking to talent agent, uh, you have to start in the mailroom. It's it's true. It's not just a phrase. So <laughs> I was the mailroom guy. I worked full time for free. This was before Obama said that wasn't legal anymore uh, for interns. So uh, I did that for a year. It did not turn into a job, unfortunately, because when a desk would open, I was like the relief assistant at times. And they were very, very good to me. I have nothing bad to say about this company whatsoever. Great people. Um, but it just didn't uh, it didn't turn into a job because when the desks would open, it's such a competitive field that I was like 22 with no work experience besides this internship in the, this industry. And I would be competing with people who were 27, 28, who wanted the same entry level job. So it just got really frustrating. And uh, eventually I decided to go to grad school to get a media management degree. So I went to the new school um, in their media studies department. And that's not easy to do, like to reinvent yourself like that. But it sounds like that was really powerful. Well, I mean, you know, it, it was sort of like, what can I put on my resume that will get me more of a foot in the door? Because, sure, sure. you know, your uncle who teaches at Stone Street can help you get an internship where you deliver mail for free, but he can't, you know, like, there's only... <laughs> <laughs> I'm not Allison Williams, who I adore, but like, uh, <laughs> I don't know her. I'm just saying like, I'm not, I wasn't that level of uh, entertainment industry Nepo baby. So I was like, well, what can I do? I guess a master's might help. But while I was, do and while I was doing that and working at, I always say working at Starbucks, but it actually wasn't a Starbucks. It was a Barnes and Noble cafe proudly serving Starbucks coffee, which is what I had to explain when um, they didn't 
when people wanted to use their Starbucks cards, because you can't use those at a Barnes & Noble cafe. We we just proudly serve Starbucks coffee. But I worked the register most of the time, which I liked because I'm a people person. Uh, and I did that for a while. And while that was all happening, I was applying to these entry-level jobs and just not getting them. Uh, and I think part of that, and I'm not, this is not to cast aspersions on any of these companies, because I don't know if any of if this is true at all, but I was much heavier then. And it's a very appearance focused business. And I think that that probably was uh, an aspect of, you know, the people who would get the jobs tended to be um, much more physically fit and, you know, attractive people who you would want to send to this Hollywood event or whatever. So that uh, was part of it that was hard too. Eventually, a friend of mine said, you know, it's not the right kind of agency, but my roommate works at a literary agency and they're looking for an internship. So I was like, oh, well, that's kind of, it. you know, I had sworn I wouldn't be an intern again because I had done it for so long and I really needed to start making money. Um, I mean, I was lucky enough that my parents are in the New York area. So I lived at home for a while. But at a certain point, you need to be paying at least some of your own bills, right? Sure, yeah. uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, God love my parents. They're extremely, extremely generous, lovely people, but they, to a point, right? Uh, and they, it was always very important to them that their kids be taking on those responsibilities when they could. My dad grew up without very much money at all. So it's just a value that is really important to him. Uh, and... I was like, I, I can't do an internship again, but I, I, like nothing else was panning out. So I said, all right, I'll apply. And I went in and I got the internship, um, which was at Lowenstein Associates in Chelsea with Barbara Lowenstein, who uh, is a legendary literary agent. She represents uh, Ishmael Reed is probably her most high profile client these days, but she has done all kinds of incredible things. The MC Beaton mystery series is her other really big stuff. Those two, Agatha Raisin and Hamish Macbeth. And I worked there for almost two years. Uh, and then the Fuse Literary was a startup and they approached me uh, because they were looking for someone who understood social media really like they were a tech focused kind of agency my boss is in the silicon valley and i had built up a pretty substantial twitter presence uh by that point just sort of talking about publishing because i did find once i started in publishing that i really loved it you have a lot more creative control uh you only work on projects that you like you don't have to be calling out auditions all day for a McDonald's radio commercial or whatever. It's much more, okay, here's something I feel passionate about and I can pursue it. Uh, that said, it's a commission business and you only eat what you kill. So I didn't make any real money until pretty recently. Uh, it's a, it's a really tough business. And but it sounds like you made a lot of really good contacts. A lot of people that you became very good friends with. I think I'm just good at that. Sure. Like, I mean, I don't know if it was because of the work I was doing or just because I, someone recently called me insistent. 
uh, when I meet people, um, not in, I hope, an over, I mean, sometimes in an overbearing way because I'm nervous, but uh, more in just a, you know, I really want to come off well and I, I want to make a connection with people. Uh, I've been told that I'm a really good interviewer, which is just not a skill that I had ever really explored before. So uh, that was a, a nice surprise to find that people think I'm good at it on my show. Um, but I think I am good at putting people at ease. I'm a Pisces, you know, we're we're empathic or whatever. Um, but I also just talk a lot. And thankfully, <laughs> like sometimes people laugh and then I pursue, like I've known Kieran Gillen for many years. And that's just because we met at New York Comic Con through mutual friends, not because of anything like super work related. Um, uh, quick Kieran Gillen story. I was working on the Marvel handbooks. I was at a convention and I walked up to, and, and Marvel handbook writers are like the lowest end of the totem pole when it comes to Marvel professionals. You don't even get to talk to editorial, do you? <laughs> uh, some, some, <laughs> uh, but, but I was, I was living in like Northern Idaho the entire time. I wrote sure. So uh, incredibly isolated. Anyway, I was at a convention and I walked up to Kieran Gillen and I said, hi, I'm Chad Anderson. We've emailed back and forth. I'm with the Marvel handbooks. And he he turned and shook my hand and he goes, thank you for all the work you do. And I was like, holy shit, this is like the nicest guy. Like he 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 was just a-, a He's a total sweetie. Person. Yeah. Um, and, but yeah, I mean, there was overlap for sure because uh, in, in my literary agenting work until recently, I focused primarily on science fiction, fantasy, and horror. So there's obviously going to be overlap there in the comic space. That's how Steve Orlando and I became friends. Uh, that's so that's, and that's how I got looped into your podcast. The first time was because Steve was going to be on it and we came on together. Um, so yeah, it's just been, uh, it's been an interesting ride. I mean, I got really burned out, um, because it's really hard. Publishing is a really hard business. And uh, right before COVID, I pivoted into nonfiction primarily, which is what I work in mostly now. Uh, I do a lot of work with celebrities, particularly reality TV personalities, because I'm not at one of, like, if you want to work with actors, you usually have to be at WME or CAA or one of those big places. And I'm at more of a boutique. So I work I work much more with unscripted reality talent or with journalists or with critics. And I find that stuff very rewarding, but I had just gotten started doing it when the lockdowns happened. And so, you know, so much of this business was and is starting to be again about schmoozing, about going to lunches, about, you know, there was one month early in my agenting career when I had a lunch with an editor every single day for a month. Mm. Uh, just like, I, I, that was crazy of me, but I scheduled like 30 in a row and made a spreadsheet with like everything I gleaned from each conversation. And that was sort of like, I guess I do tend to throw myself into things aggressively when I decide it's what I'm going to do. Um so, uh, oh God, the spreadsheets I have for this podcast. <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, when, when the lockdown started, I felt like I was finally having some success in my agent and career, in part because of the pivot to nonfiction, because I had managed to network my way into a couple Bravo celebrity memoir deals that were starting to happen, but then everything shut down. And so I yeah. couldn't go to 
meetings. We couldn't have signings. Like, you know, that was devastating to uh, to the industry, especially with celebrity books, because not everybody goes to a book signing. But with a celebrity memoir, people come to the signing because they want to meet the person who they've right. seen on TV, who they like. So uh, not being able to have those really sucked. And I was just really, really bored. And all I could think was, well, I'm reading X-Men comics again because they're so good suddenly again. And uh, my friend Patrick Willems, who's a pretty successful filmmaker, YouTuber guy, we went to college together. Um, I had appeared on his channel a couple of times as his like X-Men expert for X-Men related stuff. Uh, and every time in the comments, people would be like, you two should do a podcast about the X-Men. And so I kept saying, Patrick, if you want to do this, we should do it. And he was like, I am very busy, but you should do an excellent podcast. You won't need me to do it. Um, and so I asked a couple friends of mine for like advice on tech. Uh, I, uh, my friend, Lara Marie Shane Halls hosts the sex unique podcast, a uh, reality TV podcast. I asked her like, what mics do you use? I asked Patrick what mics he uses. And I just, figured it all out myself in like audacity and whatnot and uh guess what it it patrick was right like i didn't need him he came on for the cassandra nova episode which i had a lot of fun <laughs> with but uh i guess that's the story yeah a little I, a, a little transparency <laughs> for listeners and I, I connor and i are very different people but i think we have some similar skill sets in some ways running a podcast when you're doing this supplementary to another job it requires a tremendous amount of coordination and scheduling and keeping people interested, invested. You got to come up with a formula that nobody else is doing and diversify it. You've got to be a good interviewer, but you've also got to do your research and have everything prepared. And you also have to be adaptable and you also have to know what you're talking about. And then you have to have charisma and the ability to uh, carry on conversations and, and maintain interest on top of that. Uh, my my journey has always been pretty different, but I uh, I've always done uh, my full time job and then the stuff I do on the side creatively. So I've I've written a book and I did the Marvel stuff and I made a documentary. When COVID hit, it was similar for me. Like fuck, I'm home. I'm homeschooling two children and working all the time, and I'm going nuts. So the podcast was similar for me at a very different level. Uh, a, a way to escape all of that. Uh, Connor, if you'd like to add to that, like the skill sets required to be a podcast host, but I'd also love to ask you, uh, just putting together a character file on your show, not even doing the interviews and the scheduling and everything else. How much time are you spending a week uh, on this show? Uh, well, the editing alone takes me usually about 10 to 12 hours per episode. The character files, that's a complicated question. The thing about talking about the X-Men and writing a summary of a fictional character's history that is like a nerd character focus kind of thing is that a lot of people have already written things like this, right? And I had a serious imposter syndrome kind of thing for a while with it because I hadn't read every X-Men comic. I've read a lot more of them now, let me tell you. 
But, uh, you know, I had to fall back on certain resources like UncannyXMen.net, which is the most incredible website on the Internet, or the Marvel Universe Appendix, which I didn't know until you told me much later. A lot of the entries I was looking at for reference you had written. If you go to the appendix and see anything written by Chad Mann, I've written on this, not currently, but I've written on this site for a bajillion years, all through college. This is where my Marvel handbook job came from. Is my But that made me feel much better because like, I don't, so I don't look at reviews of the podcast uh, because I learned pretty early on that that like is self-harm that doesn't serve me. Um, And I always tell my clients, don't read your Goodreads. So like, I really shouldn't go read like the Apple podcast reviews or whatever. I've only ever seen one, like I've seen mean tweets or whatever about me, but I've only ever seen one like negative review that was like left on an app was like, he's just reading off wikis or whatever. And I was like, I'm really not. But it gave me a complex about it because I certainly am referencing the work that other people have done, but I always try to phrase it in my own way. I mean, there's only so many ways you can describe the same storyline occurring, right? I also go out of my way to shout out the sources I use. I think that that's important to do. More and more what I've found is that the important thing about those character files is to put them in my voice. Part of that was like, once the don't worry about it catchphrase came in, like that was completely just me getting exhausted with the Wolverine character file. (laughs) But that mentality of like, okay, all right, all right, all right. The TikTok helped me see this too, that like it was my voice specifically that people were responding to. And that made me feel good the character file really varies by character. At this point, I've covered most of the really big ones. So like the Jamie Braddock file, for instance, that took me like maybe actually that one. No, that one took longer because one of the best things on countyxmen.net has is they have those issue checklists for each character and they don't have a Jamie Braddock profile. So not in there, not like a big one anyway. Like they have their, they have like little profiles of every character that's ever appeared in a panel, but then they have longer form ones in their like, I believe they call it spotlight on or something like that. Yes, yes, yes. Uh-huh. Um, and those are invaluable to me because they give you those issue checklists where it's like, here are the 20 key issues that you have to read if you want to write something like this. The other thing that makes me feel like I'm adding value is that my approach to it is different from theirs or from the Marvel wikis in that I approach it from a doylist perspective rather than a Watsonian perspective. So like the profiles on UncannyXM.net, which are incredible, are written from an in-universe perspective, incorporating all of the retcons and backstory reveals and things in a chronological order as the character experiences them. So what I do, because it serves my purposes better in that I'm usually talking about the development over time of the comic or of the narrative or the structure of it, as opposed to... um trying to make the continuity work. If the continuity doesn't work, I just go, doesn't work. And I, you know, like, here's why. Uh, Is, you know, I tell you about the 60s stories and then the 70s stories and then the 80s stories and then the 90s stories, et cetera. And I tell you when the retcons happen or like, here's the issue where you find out the juggernauts. I guess you always knew the juggernauts backstory, but you get what I'm saying. Like, here's the issue where Claremont reveals that Xavier knew Jean Grey when she was a child and put these mental blocks in her brain. And this, like, that's after Dark Phoenix Saga that he retcons that together. So you wouldn't know that from looking at 
an accounting that is in in-universe accounting. So I like to think that we complement each other and that's uh, that's an exciting thing. But it also means that that's a lot of research I have to do on my own. Travis Starn's Complete Marvel Reading Order has been really essential for that because I can look at the issue checklist on countyxmen.net, then cross-reference with the Travis Starnes reading order to see to like put the key issues in publication order, then reread them on Marvel Unlimited. And, you know, it is a lot of work, but you know, thankfully I enjoy doing it. I would say the character file is my least favorite part though of uh of doing the show and and probably the most labor intensive outside of the editing itself, because the show is mostly just extemporaneous, me and a friend or me and a new friend talking for however many hours, which I find fun. Um, so it's the, it's the nitty gritty stuff that, that is difficult. Yeah. For me, it's prepping the, the content itself, but then also prepping for the interviews. Cause I'm doing a, a shitload of episodes a month. And so it's like staying on top yeah. of for all that and making sure, uh, I, Caroline was on with me when we had Fabian Nuciaza on and I was a bundle. Of- <laughs> Love Fabian. Oh, he's so great. But he's just, he's of- so sweet. He's one of my heroes. When I first contacted Fabian, that was me with Annie Nasenti. Like that was oh, yeah. that my was terrifying. Too, you were there. That uh, was my, yeah. Oh yeah, I was there for your first time with her. Yeah, but I had already uh, talked to her before, so that was helpful. To, I was able to like, I was like, let me grease the wheels here a little bit. No, I mean that was terrifying to me. She was someone who I absolutely was like afraid to talk to because I think she's a genius and she worked on so many of these things that were so important to me, and I was just like uh, awestruck. When I uh, first but, uh, when I first reached out to Fabian, he's like, "Hey, your show sounds great, but I'm tired of talking about X Men. Try me again in a year." And I waited a whole year and came, back <laughs> and then he said, "I still don't want to talk about X Men." And I said, "Let's do Thunderbolts then." And it, it turned out, it turned out. He's okay. always down to talk about Thunderbolts or New Warriors. Yeah, he, uh, he's a great guy. Uh, Caroline, who are some of your uh, heroes in comic books? Who are some of the people that you've looked up to most or or remember fondly? Um, I mean, Fabian. Yeah, pretty much anyone connected to the whole um, Betsy and Kano and thing. Um, I, I love, I don't know, I, I'm geared more towards artists than writers. Um, as far as writers go, Fabian is... Um, at the top there um artists you know i i like um mark brooks and um peach momoko and um god there's a whole list i can't even <laughs> go through it those are but two yeah, very was- nice people also which is always nice when like you like someone's work and then they turn out to be really nice yeah like uh- Chris Claremont, actually, you know, I was really happy to get to meet him before. And yeah, although I, I he kind of broke my heart <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> oh, no, I was he'll dressed- do that, though. It's like part of his shtick, right? What did he yeah. say? What, what happened to you with Chris? I was dressed as Silk and he asked me about the character and then he like made a comment about, um, oh, they just don't uh, make any like original characters anymore, do they? <laughs> you know, Because mm. she has so much in common with Spider-Man. And right. Like, but I still love her. You know? Yeah, I mean, to be fair to him, he did invent like 300 original characters that they now continue to use. And so I think he just has a certain... The thing about Chris is he's cranky and he has a reason to be cranky, but he also does kind of a cranky persona thing because it's how he banters with fans. And I think sometimes people take it a little seriously when he doesn't mean it 
that yeah. seriously. We, uh, uh, but I'm sorry that happened. <laughs> that would be that would be when, disappointing. When we had Fabian on, this was right before we started recording, and I was heartbroken. And Fa- Fabian goes to Caroline, "How come you're not in your Silent cosplay?" He's like, "I was just wearing my Silent cosplay, but it was riding up too much, so I changed." And I was like, yeah, "That's funny. You're hilarious." He's well, like, when he was on my show, I mean, obviously, like what Caroline and I have in common. She, when she was on my show, it was for the Conan episode. Um, which is one of the only episodes, by the way, that I have gotten negative feedback about, not because of you, but because someone was like, you did a lot of reading and you didn't let her talk. And I was like, she was, she's shy. I know yeah. when my, when my guest wants to talk and when they like, trust me, I'm not, you know, I was like, I think she was very happy with it. Leave me alone. Yeah. It was only my second time being on a podcast before. So I was still like wet behind the ears and, and even now I'm still like, I get nervous still, but yeah, like I was. I was terrified. I mean, I was drinking, you know. <laughs> I was very happy. And I think it's a great episode. And people really liked the episode. It was just that one email of just like, stop reading aloud and let that woman speak. And I was like, oh, my God. I kept prompting her. I just cut the prompts because then it's if if I if you here's a how the sausage is made thing. I cut a lot of the prompts that I give to my guests because part of my job is to ask them a question that might continue the conversation. But I don't want to sound like I'm badgering someone with questions so when i say something like what do you think about this story i cut that because i want it to just sound like the person not because the people are nervous especially if it's their first time on the show especially with my show which i've been told uh is daunting to appear on um i can't imagine why it's only you know a three to four hour podcast where we go over the entire publication history of a fictional character (laughs) (laughs) um but you know like I, i so i try to put people at ease and i don't want you know, I want it to sound as uh, as natural and fun as possible because it is natural and fun. Even if there is an awkward pause mm-hmm. for a second when we're like, what do we want to say about this comic? Like, it's not a bad awkward pause. It the just would time, sound that way if you were listening to it and you were like, why are they silent for 10 seconds? Yeah, <laughs> the first time. Yeah, I was grateful too. I was very grateful that you, you know. Kind well, of... you were a fantastic guest. So you have well, It's a great episode. To... The first time I had Caroline on, we had uh, uh, Jerry Gaylord on. And I remember us, everybody started a little nervous and we were just laughing and laughing and laughing. It was, uh, Caroline, you're a wonderful guest and you should do these shows more often. Thank you. Uh, so I think this is a natural spot to probably transition. Uh, Connor, thank you for sharing more of your story. It's great to get to know you better. We've uh, we've we've met in person uh, at FlameCon, but I uh, got to hang out on this show a number of times, and I'm super excited and honored to come on your show soon. It's going to be uh, a lovely time. Well, thank uh, you. It was very flattering to be asked to come be like I've been your guest host a couple times now. And it was very flattering for you to be like, I'd like to interview you. I was like, really? OK, I can do that. Cerebral is a big deal. And I'm, I'm trying to I, I'm trying to give every episode kind of its own flavor. So, you know what? I've got Roy Thomas on one time and then uh, Goldsmith on the next. My next episode after this uh, preemptive announcement is Lenore Zand, which will be a very different. Oh, that's super fun. And I'm yeah. so excited. So it's uh, it's wonderful to kind of create an individual energy about I me. bet Roy Thomas is a great interview i he wouldn't the thing people ask me about having like really legendary creators on my show and for the most part it doesn't fit the format very well like i you know someday i will do something with chris chris and i've talked about this and he's a he's a really i I call him chris like we're friends he like would not pick me out of a lineup but we've spoken a couple times and he's he gave me his card and stuff and he's lovely but uh I don't want to ask Chris Claremont to read stories by anyone 
who isn't him because he doesn't want to. You know, sure. with Annie, I didn't do long shot with her because I was like, I'm not going to make Annie Nascenti read the 30 years of long shot stories that happened <laughs> after she wrote her miniseries. So we did Mojo because much like Apocalypse, most of the Mojo stories are not that great. So I mostly wanted to talk about her big original Mojo story and then hit the highlights and explain to her how the character had been used well since. So Roy, I don't think Roy Thomas would make sense as a guest yeah, on the show, Roy, but Roy he's a fascinating person. Roy's a great guy and he's got a memory like a steel trap. He, I could, I've, I've asked him questions about the locust or the cobalt man. <laughs> well, Chris Hassan from AIPT asked him about Candy Southern and like name checked me. And I was like, oh mm -hmm. my God, Chris. We, Roy and I had a five minute conversation about the Frankenstein alien that the X-Men fight in like number 40 and where that came from that idea. Like he's, he's got a memory, like a still trap, but he, uh, he, he, he wants like 45 minute doses and you have to schedule very much in advance. And I've interviewed him twice and I don't think he remembered me the second time, but he was super <laughs> gracious and lovely. He just does a lot of public interviews and he's in his early eighties for heaven's sake. Uh, okay, so with this, let's uh, let's delve into our issue review. This is Kazar number two. This is an angel-focused story from early 1970. It's an issue called, or this story in this issue is called From the Sky, Winged Wrath, which is just, again, very like 60s Batman energy to it. Now, this is written by Jerry Siegel, who is the, uh, the creator of Superman, along with Joe Schuster. Uh, Jerry Siegel's parents emigrated from Lithuania to escape anti-Semitism in the 1800s. He was born in America in 1914, lived until 1996. Uh, he created Superman in 1933. And when you consider the idea that Superman's created, at least in part, by the son of Jewish immigrants, uh, and he's the everyman who, uh, who's grown on to uh, represent the the fantasy of what it's like to have power and to stand for good. Uh, I mean, he redefined uh, uh, superhero comics for everything that have ever happened since. It started with Superman in so many ways. Uh, he worked for Marvel sometimes as a writer. He's credited... Joe Schuster, I, I don't mean to cut you off. I'm sorry. Joe Schuster was also the son of Jewish immigrants. Oh, so sure. It's the, yeah, so it was just, it's the whole, uh, it's the whole thing. His, Joe Schuster's family was from Ukraine, um, also escaping pogroms and the like so uh it's funny when people see superman as like a thing about i'm not a huge superman if you see not i actually like fucked up referencing this story recently and i was like i think it's joe schuster but joe schuster's an artist not a writer so i knew it wasn't joe schuster but it just i'm like jerry siegel joe schuster just kind of come out of my mouth together right sure. um but it's interesting to me when the way superman gets adapted as sort of this like american myth figure especially when he gets christianized because to me like the essential narrative of superman is that this waspy american couple in the midwest find this jewish baby that's been moses style put into the boat and set sure. out and take him in and he it's an immigrant story, right? It's about what it means to be American and how it doesn't matter where you came from, which is a nice idea. It's not something that always takes place. It's a specifically Jewish immigration story, much like the 60s X-Men. It's about being someone who looks white, but is seen as this racial other at the same time. And there's people who now feel that Superman isn't sufficiently uh 
messagey in that way because the immigrants who are now facing that kind of bias and prejudice and hatred in our country tend to be people of color. So uh, it's an interesting question. I know that um, there's been talk about adapting uh, the next time they do a movie, like potentially using an actor of color in the role. And I think that would be a really smart choice. It's different from like Magneto, I think, needs to be a European Jew. Like there are certain characters where I'm like, mm, this is a Jewish story that I really <laughs> think needs it. But like, I think having a black or Latino or Middle Eastern actor play Kal-El would be really smart in, in a modern moment. But yes, it's that immigrant context. And that's so completely different to go around. This is why my podcast is four hours completely different from Warren Worthington III, a wealthy waspy heir from Long Island whose parents have been here since the Mayflower. So it's just a very different uh, story for, for Jerry Siegel to be writing. And part of what I find interesting about this is the way that he writes the sort of like wasp landed gentry of the region that he lived in which is different from how he would write something like superman yeah yeah now he he did write for marvel sometimes he uh used a pen name uh, of joe carter uh jerry siegel's second wife's name is joanne carter so the fact that his pen name was joe carter is cute uh he wrote some of the early like strange talesy kind of anthology stuff he's the co-creator of plant man he also cre- uh, helped create the uh, the Human Torch's girlfriend, uh, Dory Evans, who we love. Uh, and his wife, just uh, this is a fun fact, Joanne Carter was the model for the character Lois Lane when they created her for the comics, which is a lot of fun as well. So this is during an era, this is 1970, decades after Superman's been created. He's now working for Marvel. In this uh, particular issue, he's using his own name. Uh, we don't know exactly how he picked the angel story or the angel character. Marvel had a wide swath of characters he could have chosen from. And I don't know exactly how this angel story ended up in this issue, but there is three parts to this. The story is very like Macbethy. We'll get to that, but we're going to spend uh, our next three episodes talking about this story. Uh, I want to review the Worthingtons just very briefly. Uh, I'm going to add some future continuity in X-Men, the Hellfire Club series, number two. And Connor, I know this is a series that (laughs) you find pretty wild. Uh, We meet the character of Wallace Worthington. He marries Elizabeth Shaw and ends up yeah, I, into I, death I, of the I, 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 To me, this story is not canon. It's because X-Men Hellfire Club is Sebastian Shaw myth-making about his own family. And so portraying, like in story, it's the story Tessa tells Irene Merriweather. So I just don't, but I think the it's a very appealing notion to Sebastian Shaw that the Worthingtons were cuckolded and that their male line is actually a secret Shaw line. That's <laughs> I mean, but it's not true. Well, the the character Wallace Worthington ends up getting beaten to death by Lady Grey in this story. There's another random who shouldn't series. exist because she's a fantasy that Mastermind create. I'm sorry, guys. Yeah, it's, it's a strange one. There's, I, this there's is another... why. I, this is why on my show we do it in publication order because when this story <laughs> comes out, none of this shit is true. So I don't even understand why we're talking about it. I'm just introducing the Worthingtons for a moment. There's another random one shot called Human Torch Comics 70th Anniversary Special Number One, where we meet Warren Worthington uh, Sr., 
who is saved from a burning dirigible by the Human Torch. So that's a random story as well. I don't think we've ever seen that character again. Then we've got Warren Worthington Jr., who is Angel's dad. He's shown up. We talked about him on my show in the issues or episodes reviewing X-Men 14, 17, 18, mm-hmm. 54. And then again with the Angel's Revelation series that we talked about pretty recently. Uh, he will show up again uh, in uh, uh, X-Men The Hidden Years a little bit, the, uh, as does Angel's mom. We get more of Well, he's dad in The Hidden there. Years, but... But, the, but there's more it. of the family company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. explored in that space. Now, X-Factor 57 reveals that Worthington Industries dates back to 150 years ago. And then we get an issue of Wolverine and the X-Men that talks about how this company has international uh, conglomerates holdings in like aviation technology and alternative fuels, uh, newspapers, and then randomly frozen yogurt is thrown in there, which is kind of <laughs> crazy. Uh, but this uh, it, it describes the company as having nearly unaccountable or uncountable wealth. Uh, it's also got some connections to the Hellfire Club, the Worthingtons. So none of that's super relevant to this particular issue, but it gives us some insight into the type of world that Angel grew up in. In the Angel Revelation series, some of the contemporaries at school are like the vice president's son. And these uh, these are kind of big names and big communities that I can't really make sense of because I've never been a part of them. But, but Warren operates on a different level. Uh, Warren is also closeted from his parents. He has hidden his wings from as a mutant. Life, yeah. As a mutant, they do not know he straps his wings down uh, under his suit. Okay, so jumping into this particular story, we start with uh, our pencils by George Tuska, inks by Dick Ayers, letters by Sam Rosen, and then of course Stan Lee on edits. They still did not credit who did the colors back then. Uh, Caroline Connor, any uh, <laughs> comments on kind of just that brief introduction into the Worthingtons before we jump in? Um, I mean, I think that the key, this is the really the first time we get to know them is the thing like they're not established in depth in the early X-Men stories. We get, I guess, in the later in like the 40s and 50s, there are those how everybody joins the X-Men moments and we get mm-hmm. a little bit more there. Angel uh, fell into the pool again. Oh, right. Yeah, it's very like... <laughs> or I there's, mean, that I... time, there's that time Magneto captured them and, and tried to use their DNA to make mutant androids. Sure, but you get what I'm saying. <laughs> They're not super developed characters. So this is part of where we start to get a sense of them. And one of the things that I think is really key here is that they clearly approve of Warren dating Candy, which... It's 1970, and they're allowed to go out alone, unmarried. She's allowed to come by the house. It's clear that... Because we haven't seen her since the Roy Thomas stories in 67. So it's reiterating... That's why I'm like, I wonder when this was written. Because it's reiterating that relationship when she'd been off the page for a couple years and establishing, oh, it's a serious relationship... But I like that we get a sense through that of the kind of attitude that Warren's parents have. They're not as like stuffy as you might expect some people of this social class at this time to be. They're not trying to arrange a pair for him with like the daughter of another wealthy family. Candy presumably comes from money, but not like the Worthingtons do. And so I I think that that's interesting we also in this story will come to learn that warren's father is a pretty moral guy to his own detriment in the end and in that way he's sort of akin to 
a trope of the golden age in comics that continues into the silver age um, of the billionaire or multimillionaire who is just a really good guy, uh, which is something that you see with Bruce Wayne or Tony Stark, or I mean, even when they are prickly, we're supposed to understand that these rich people are good rich people. And it's just an interesting archetype that you don't see as much anymore because people are just less likely to to go with that. In fact, like these days, if you have a character come from a rich family, they almost always have a shitty relationship with their parents where their parents turn out to be evil or whatever else. And so this is sort of a more innocent time with that trope. Um, but like Jubilee's wealthy parents who are good people, it ends up getting him killed. So the the moral of the story is that rich people probably shouldn't be good people if they don't want to be murdered <laughs> to have their money stolen from them. I mean, that's what happens to the Waynes too, right? So One of the reasons it, I, I, I'm led to believe this comic is written much earlier is Angel is back in his Jean Grey design ketchup and mustard yes. costume with the suspenders and the red boots. And he had put on the white and blue costume the by Magneto this point, the one that Magneto in the designed Land. in the Savage Land, right? <laughs> so that's why I do think this is like an inventory story that they had lying around. Um, so Angel on page one is soaring through the sky. It's a really beautiful splash page. I actually often love George Tuska's pencils. Angel's yelling, this is where I belong. This is what I was born for, to fly, to soar above the crowd, above the rooftops, as free as any man can ever be. Uh, down there among the masses, Warren Worthington is just a face in the crowd, but here with my wings unfurled, the angel can fly again. And the queerness of this, when you can let yourself out of the closet, you take your binder off and let your wings out and you get to go be yourself. Uh, we talked about the joy of gay clubs, and I think that's Warren in the sky. Uh, he talks about how he's coming into his own here. It's really beautifully done. Now, he's flying, and Angel did, before he joined the X-Men, have a brief career where he called himself the Avenging Angel. It's referenced in those backstories we talked about. He had a gun that he designed himself with ping pong balls full of gas, which is so fucking stupid, <laughs> but 60s camp, which I love. And he sees some uh, some very weird kind of, it's guys wearing like Hydra knockoff suits with like very Kirby fancy guns, uh, robbing a bank and their speech styles are ridiculous. Uh, they're, they're, they're activating a battering ram and one of the guys says, sock it to, uh, sock it to them doors already, Charlie, what you're waiting for? Somebody to roll out a red carpet? So it's like very much this like very campy, uh, 60s, 70s dialogue. Uh, they blast their way into the bank. They're grabbing handfuls of money when Angel bursts in and starts punching them in the face. It must be one of them mutants, they yell, and they're zapping guns and he makes them shoot each other. And Angel's actually very effective here. Uh, with his fighting style, which he didn't often get a chance to be, especially in the later 60s books, where he was often bumbling. Uh, Connor, do you want to take us through the next few pages? Uh, tell us what happens next. Sorry, just fielding like 500 emails is the thing about doing this on a weekday, which is usually when I do it. So it just it happens. <laughs> The cop goes, hey, I know you. You're that freak they call. Then one goes, freak, watch your language or you just might discover this angel has one devil of a temper. And for 
And, oh, forget it. Take these goons without my compliments. And he hurls the goons at the cop. The fear, the distrust even lawmen feel for my kind sticks in my craw. Magneto said ordinary humans and homo superior can't ever live together in peace. But I can't. I won't buy that. Not when the two people on Earth I love the most, Mom and Dad, belong to homo sapiens. And he's <laughs> flying now to his mansion home where he grew up with his parents. Strange, this kind of odd setup we get going in our family. My own parents don't know I'm a mutant, so when I fly, it's got to be on the sly. And when I walk among ordinary men in my identity of Warren Worthington III, I've got to look like them, dress like them, and we see, you know, the suits in his closet where he straps down his wings under them. Xavier helped him with that. Um, this is, in this sequence, he's landing in the window so that his parents won't see him land. And on the next page, he is doing, as Anthony and I talked about in the Iceman episode, the incredibly erotic weird bondage thing of like Warren in his underwear strapping his wings down, which occurs throughout the 60s comics and is always like very strangely He's all abs and triceps. I'm into Yeah. <laughs> I even have to strap myself into a harness so I can pass for an ordinary Joe. There's nothing to stop my thoughts from taking wing. Oh, Jerry, that's cute. Exit the, <laughs> exit the angel. Enter Warren Worthington the third who has his feet very much on the ground. A real down-to-earth fella. Hi, Mom, why so surprised to see me? And she didn't know that he was home. And neither does Dad, who is protesting that he doesn't need bed rest. Warren points out that the family doctor said that he should be sleeping because he's been sick. And Worthington Jr., uh, Warren's dad says, never mind what that overeducated quack said. I never felt better. And and we're gonna we're gonna meet this family doctor in the X Men in the hidden years, years in which he's evil and he's poisoning Warren's father yeah, during yeah. this story, but that's a retcon. <laughs> uh, so Warren lies to him, which is kind of interesting. It's like you do look better, but he's thinking not actually. Like something really bad is going on. That's when the phone rings, and the housekeeper Matilda picks it up, and, and she is she something, man. <laughs> <laughs> She's fun. She goes, Warren, baby, it's candy. And she has words only for you. And I would love to know more about Matilda, the Worthington housekeeper, who's a character that could. I bet Warren has like set her up with a retirement fund. It would be fun to see them get lunch or something because she probably like was with him when he was young. Like, that's the thing about <laughs> these wealthy families, right? Is like the the house staff is someone you grow up around, which is a weird way to uh to grow up and, a, and an interesting dynamic then with the parents who he's kind of distant from like did he have a closer relationship with this nanny that would be an interesting story too but outside of this story we don't really get much of their home life so these are just this is just me extrapolating anyway yeah. um the next page uh warren is feeling guilty because candy wants to go out but he feels like he should stay home with his dad because his dad's sick and his dad's like, no, 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 go out and have fun. So we see Warren and Candy, who is a redhead randomly in this story, uh, go to a disco called The Fun Place. Shortly outside, one of the town's liveliest night spots, Warren says, they say the new group here is terrific. And Candy says, with a great, with a great new sound. At that precise moment, as the young couple prepares for a Fun time. Two fantastic forms zoom toward an evil rendezvous. And it's the same goons from before or different goons, but the same outfit. They're using little hover scooters to fly above the Statue of Liberty. And uh, scant minutes after entering a secret room beneath the Statue of Liberty, twin beams of radiance probe piercingly at them. Then 
It authenticates their identities and they go in to meet the Dazzler, not to be confused with Alison Blair. This is Dazzler 1 as God bless again to go back. UncannyXmen.net is so particular with their like so-and-so one, so-and-so two, so-and-so three. So Alison Blair on UncannyXmen.net is always referred to as Dazzler 2 because Dazzler 1 is this character, uh, which I, I just love that. I think that's delightful. Uh <laughs> He is like, W.K. Worthington, he intends to destroy us. That's Warren's dad, Warren Kenneth. Your assignment? Kill him! Any preferences to method or weapons, Dazzler? Use the Ray Blaster full force before he dies. Let him see its muzzle. So that's the plan. We're going to kill Warren's dad. Dazzler has this, like, purple hat on (laughs) that's, like, covered in, like, little plastic studs and he's got the largest front teeth i've ever seen he has like weird big there's like well it's it's sort of his whole upper jaw but you just the only line in it is that he clearly has a gap in his front teeth any i guess anytime (laughs) i hear or read candy southern i hear your voice now it's in good i'm glad planted in my brain uh so they are at the fun place and they are dancing their asses off and they're listening to a band called the far outs which is so 1960s mod and i love it very much uh connor what's your what's your uh uh, opinion on how candy is portrayed in this story it it keeps her kind of fun loving wonderful energy up i know she's known for that Yeah, well, and it's, you know, she had been established that way by Roy Thomas immediately. And this story uh, continues that vibe to her. She's a swinging 60s gal. She's more effervescent and loose in many ways in the context of this time than, for example, Jean, who is much more reserved in her way, or uh, Vera Cantor, who's, you know, very buttoned up. She's more like Zelda, but... Yeah, I mean, I know that you love all these girlfriend characters, which is why I'm comparing and contrasting. (laughs) But I think that with Candy, there's a lightness to her that accentuates Warren's relative lightness within the 05 X-Men, who are generally, even Hank, who's like always joking, and Bobby, who's always joking, they're more tortured characters uh, than Warren is. And so I like that she is kind of a release valve for him. If you go to the Candy Southern episode, Sarah Sunshine and I talk about how some of the Warren and Candy stuff we like best is when they show up in other books, like a Marvel Comics Presents or the Avengers or whatever, because they're always just having a great time. And other characters just go, oh, it's Warren and Candy. Gosh, they look like they're having fun. And that is always enjoyable to me. I think that the George Tusca... Uh, panels here, particularly of the dance club, are just gorgeous. Uh, the big splash panel of, well, it's not a, it's not a splash page, but it's a big panel of them dancing. It just really, it communicates a vibe and like, is Warren a great dancer? Maybe not, but they're clearly having a lot of fun. They have a lot of chemistry. You can feel it. They can go to the far outs at the fun place and it's a great time. Uh, they leave the club. Uh, Candy's just living. Uh, her hair is blowing in the wind. She's never going to forget tonight. Turn the music up. And Warren's thinking, and this is so 60s, a speedy car, a streamlined girl, a lilting tune. A streamlined girl is such a great line. That's such a bizarre 60s phrase. But you get exactly what he means, right? Like Car- she's, Caroline, just, you she's a, very aerodynamic. Are you a streamlined girl, Caroline? Probably not, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think he's referring to her having an uh, uh, that hourglass figure that was coveted at the time. 
Um, but back at the Worthington house, some of these Hydra knockoff guys uh, burst in. They find uh, Catherine Worthington sitting there. And they're like, oh, we don't have any instructions about the old dame. We'll leave her alone. And then they track down Warren Jr. He's going to call the police. Uh, he's got a wall full of portraits. One of them has a cowboy on it. <laughs> and uh, they say, you ain't calling anyone, not even the undertaker. Nobody squeals on the dazzler, rat. Uh, this will button your lips forever. And they shoot him. And Warren's dad is dead, which is so abrupt, even though it's not a character we care a lot about. Uh, and they're back to the car. And uh, Candy, again, is just having a great time, arms up. When Warren hears on the news that his father has been slain and the killers have escaped on uh, strange flying devices. And Warren, in one of his less proud moments, uh, pulls the car over, rushes into a tree. And Candy does not know he's Angel at this point, presumably. Uh, I, this is where she will find out later in this story. Uh, Hidden Years, I think, establishes that when she was unconscious later in this story, she woke up at one point, And so she's hip to the secret now. Now, Warren is grieving his dad is dead, which, of course, is awful. But as he as he but he does, he free, does say some pretty mean things to Candy in this moment because she says, he's Please, like, I want to help you. He says, just get out of my life. And when he's on his own, he says, dad, dad's dead. And while I'm earthbound, his killers are up in the sky and he blames Candy for it. Uh, as he's going after these men, he because he, she asked him to go out, and yeah, yes. this is a this is a ridiculous thing to say. He is grieving; it's not nice. He will, of course, be forced to realize in the following two parts of the story that Candy is the most important person to him, and that he will need to rescue her. So that's the arc that's going on here. But yes, he says some pretty mean things here. It's a very Silver Age moment because this is not how human beings speak to each other when they're having a disagreement, right? So this is very much like a Spider-Man moment when he's overcome with guilt and going after the criminals. Angels. 100%. He very Uncle Ben. He finds the guys on their air scooters. He knocks them off with a kapow, knocks their guns loose. I've got to use strategy. I got to be more careful. He's thocking them in the face and punching them. And you don't deserve to live. You killed this wonderful man that I loved. Why shouldn't I exterminate you like you did him? Uh, but they manage to, uh, he, he manages to defeat them. And then as he lands, there's a surprise appearance by Mr. Fred Duncan, uh, who is uh, the 60s FBI agent character. He, uh, we, get a, we get a little note that reminds you that back in X-Men uh, 44, when Professor X was supposedly dead, Fred Duncan was left in charge of the X-Men's activities, which is such a bizarre turn. And uh, he says, cool, cool it, Angel. These are the, the stooges of the Dazzler. Let me take you to their leader. And he slaps Fred aside and he's like, all I want is the Dazzler. My dad died because of him. So I will get my uh, vengeance. Oh, he'll pay with his life. So says the Angel. And then it's to be continued in next issue. Uh, it's a pretty good story for 11 pages when you kind of wrap it all up in one space. Uh, Caroline, what are some of your thoughts on this story? I like the dialogue, you know, the different quotes, plus stooges and all that. It's just it is very like Dick Tracy type, you know, mm -hmm. detective kind of talk from way back when, you know, and it's a lot of fun. Uh, and and Connor, I know uh, I know you are a, a huge Candy Southern head, maybe the biggest one on the planet, which is why I wanted to time this issue with you here because it's uh, Candy coming back in a kind of big way. <laughs> <laughs> we yeah, well, I mean, she makes an impact here. And uh, I think that this story, I mean, it was very clear that when doing Hidden Years, John Byrne was referencing this story heavily when it 
really hadn't been referenced very much in X-Men continuity otherwise. And I mean, he does a sequel to this where it's like further intrigues with Dazzler One and all of that. And Warren's, the tragic death of Warren's mother, which is what happens in the hidden years. Yeah, uh, spoiler and you get, alert. That, you get that note in uh, Champions later on. In Champions, you find out that yes, his mother has recently passed. And so now he's the John Byrne you know, gives he, us the what happens story exactly and uses this story as the context and I have to assume that that's in part why Byrne was interested in using Candy so extensively in that book he had also written her uh, drawn her previously in that Hulk annual that yeah, I yeah. love where she goes that's a sentinel um <laughs> you know but <laughs> so you know I, it's just she's what can I say that I haven't said for hours on end previously? I was just on Tighten Up the Defense for the Candy Southern Becomes Leader of the Defenders episode. Like, this is... People do tap me in. <laughs> I guess Candy! Cole Connor! <laughs> yeah, I mean, I but I love this character, and I think that this is a great example, even though she doesn't have a super active role in this story, of what makes her compelling as that girlfriend character in a way that's not quite... She's very Mary Jane Watson here. Uh, and in the same way that Mary Jane was so immediately popular that it unfortunately led to pretty dire consequences for Gwen Stacy, um, that kind of swinging 60s chick who's like, you know, he had a level with you, sport, about everything that's going on in the story is such a fun, effervescent, I said that word already, but like that's the word I would think of for it. Like it's that there's that bubbly, but like she's also smart in the same way that Mary Jane is quick. Like they're witty. And uh, I think that that is special, especially in this early stage of American comics where a lot of the time female characters were not allowed to be as zippy or, you know, funny as uh, an assigned male comic relief character like Iceman and the Beast. Uh, Vera is to me what Candy is to you. But we'll talk more about Vera another time. I love but she's her. no fun at all. That's the oh, thing I, about Vera. Oh, she is. You have to look for it. No, but you get what I'm like. But that's her character <laughs> is that she's not fun until yeah, yeah. the 80s when suddenly she's way too fun for Hank. Um, <laughs> uh, so for listeners, uh, I sent Caroline the wrong issue. So I apologize. Yeah. Like, normally we all be part of the recap, but I, that was my... Uh, editorial mistake caroline thank you're you. gonna get the notes now about you did too much reading and didn't let caroline speak <laughs> so it's full circle moment on this podcast <laughs> i try to be very flexible i prepare everything just in case but i apologize for that mistake caroline thank you for your patience no, it's fine. Uh, this as, is a hard one to find so as we are wrapping up let me just share my affection for the both of you i think you are wonderful humans i look forward to having you back on the show again and to hanging out in real life sometime soon i hope uh, Caroline, next time you're in Salt Lake City, let's go hit a gay club up. We'll have a great time. Okay. <laughs> That's such um, a specific gay club vibe. I can't there, imagine. There's a few good ones here. We, I'm sure there are, but as we are uh, wrapping up, we're going to put this episode out on March 27th. Uh, where can people find each of you online? And what would you like to plug? Uh, Grey Malkin PP like podcast is on Twitter. Grey Malkin underscore Lynn on Instagram. I keep my own social media private because I've got kiddos. But the two of you are welcome to add me. Uh, right after this episode, we are going to continue with the next two Angel stories. So Lenore Zan's coming with me for part two. After that, we have Stuart Moore coming on the show uh, for part three. And then the next episode after that is going to be uh, Cable Minus One. 
which is a crazy cable Moira McTaggart Wolvesbane story. Uh, and my guest on that episode is going to be uh, Charlie Jane Anders, which I'm so oh, fun. Uh, She's uh, a sweetie. Getting to meet her. Uh, I've known she's another one I've known through work for a really, really long time she because is she just, is historically a prose writer. She's lovely. And then uh, my next Patreon episode after this, uh, the next two, one is going to be on Crimson Commando with Steve Orlando. And uh, right after that, I get to have uh, J.M. DeMatteis coming back on. We're going to talk all about oh, Professor Power, which is another Candy Southern character. <laughs> it sure is. And it's a great Candy Southern moment. I forced him when we were talking about New Defenders to go back. Or we were talking about Iceman. And I forced him to take a moment to talk about Candy and Professor Power when you had me guest host with JM because I couldn't help myself. He's such a good guy. I'm, I'm really excited to hang out with them both. Uh, uh, Caroline, where can Caroline, you- yeah, you go first. We've been talking a mile a minute. Um, I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram under Caroline Cosplay. Uh, and you should check it out. She does some of the best Psylocke work you're likely to see. There was a revanche cosplay that as... <laughs> A one-time teenager who posted on the UncannyXmen.net forums as a 13-year-old with the username Revanche. I was very delighted to see oh my God, some solid so, Revanche cosplay. I was so excited when that one made it into Neo Magazine. This yeah. issue. So I'm like, yay, so I got cool. her published. <laughs> so, so cool. And it's uh, a UK there, magazine. <laughs> is there any new cosplay you're working on this year, Caroline? Um, I have nothing in the works right now, actually. Um. I don't know. I have a couple I'm kind of toying with, but it all depends on time and money and also motivation. <laughs> completely understood. Caroline both Caroline and I both have children. We are busy with that part of our lives as well. Yeah. So I completely understand. And then Connor. You can follow me on Twitter at Dream of Organon, O-R-G-O-N-O-N, or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at Cerebrocast. It's now also on TikTok and YouTube. Uh, with the, I mean, it's been on TikTok for a while, but the Cerebro TikTok is now also on YouTube. Um, my friend, Krikoa Welcomes, manages that and makes the videos, and it's truly incredible an anonymous account their name is presumably not actually Krakoa welcomes but you understand what i'm saying uh i am trying to use social media less so uh i hopefully by the time this episode is out i'm not easy to find on twitter but uh you never know (laughs) um you can find out more about cerebro at cerebrocast.com you can get a link to the merch store the Discord server, which is my primary social media these days, and much, much more. List of all the episodes for $5 a month at the House of Zaladine tier at patreon.com slash cerebrocast. You can get exclusive access to the secret files, bonus episodes, including the upcoming series Worrying About It, which digs into some of the weirder continuity snarl ongoing plots. The first one's going to be about the Black Womb Project. Uh, The New series, The Cerebro Appendix, which is about characters who haven't reached their full Zaladin threshold of 12 appearances. So uh, the first one that is out now is with Ash Elaine from X of Words, who came on to talk about Astrid Bloom, the villain of the Emma Frost origin series that I hate so much. Uh, <laughs> and uh, Then there's also the Claremont Read along the Claremont Marathon, which is uh, the Claremont Marathon, which is a read along series where we go through 
Every issue of the Claremont run, we're in the middle of the initial Phoenix saga, not the Dark Phoenix saga part yet. Uh, and I am excited to get that back rolling. The first two months uh, of this year have been really crazy at my work work. So I'm a little behind on those, but uh, it's been really fun to do. And I mean, that's one thing we didn't mention is like, I get really stressed too, because with how much work it is and and how long the episodes are, it's pretty much impossible for me to have a regular release schedule. So part of like the momentum building is like you, people expect an episode on Tuesdays or whatever. And I just can't, I can't like really commit to, I just Beyonce drop them whenever they're ready. Done when you're done. Yeah. 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 Um, and so you'll notice that over the last like four or five months, there's fewer episodes per month, but that's partly because I've just been busy. But since each one is like four hours, I feel like, you know, I, I used to get really stressed out about that. And then Spotify last year at, for like Spotify rap for podcasters told me that uh, I put out more content in 2022 than 99% of all podcasters on <laughs> earth. And so then I decided to shut up with my anxieties. But uh, anyway, Love doing the show. Check it out. Uh, hope you enjoyed this. And Chad, thank you so much for having me. Caroline, it was great to see you again. Yeah, it's always a pleasure. Uh, it's great and, uh, to see you. Yeah, both. that's me. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. Uh, someone, like my friend Seth recently asked me, who do you think your listeners are most excited to see come on your show? Because we've been on the 60s for so long. Uh, is, it, is it Wolverine? Is it Storm? I'm like, people are most excited for Chris Claremont to come on my show. <laughs> sure. not, not as a guest even, but just getting into the Claremont content because the quality goes up. We will get Sure does, yeah. Um, we've only done one Claremont story on my show and that was Bizarre Adventures 27, which is the story you talked about. Uh, with Gene's uh, uh, childhood. Yeah. yeah well, you also, right. you did the one that he was a story consultant on as an intern mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. where the Sentinels fly into the sun. That was his mm -hmm. idea. God, that was nuts. <laughs> 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 that whole story is crazy. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. Uh, Connor, thank you. Caroline, thank you. We'll see you back here next time on Grand Malkin Lane. Thank you for listening to Grand Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Grand Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Graham Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Graham Malkin Lane.